welcome back to the Irish NFL show Saturday night uh, in the NFL. Great to always have a show on a Saturday night and great to be joined with the usual lads, but a special guest today. Uh, one of the best ever guys to put on a jersey for the Buffalo Bills. We had Jim Kelly on before. We are delighted to have Steve Tasker on today's show. Steve, it's an honor to have you on. Welcome on. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Um, it's a privilege. I've uh, traveled to Ireland uh, just a handful of years ago. My wife and I, on our anniversary, spent eight days in Ireland, and we absolutely loved it. Our first question, ironically, for every guest, Steve, especially American guests, to be fair, because it is an NFL show, have you any Irish connections? Or even if you haven't, where did you go in Ireland? Where did you stay for, 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 for those eight days? We landed in uh, Dublin and... Uh, my wife and it was my wife and I and another couple who were celebrating their anniversary as well, friends of ours. And we, my friend and I, he and I played three rounds of golf. We played at the K Club, and we played at uh, Old Head, and then we played at uh, the last one was oh Valley Bunyan. So we stayed in the southern half and went around the coast and spent about eight days traveling around. I think we were there for eight days and went into. 20, I don't know how many pubs, 20, 23 pubs, 24 pubs, my favorite. It was, absolute, it was an absolute joy to be there. We loved every minute that we spent on the island. Well, you were, uh, you were in some great spots, certainly. And uh, when we had Jim Kelly on, he was talking about coming over with his brothers. So maybe you can jump in on, on that trip as well, Steve. Um, I might pass on the Kelly brothers trip. <laughs> I, don't think I, could, I don't think I could survive it. <laughs> so before we kind of launch into your stellar football career there are stories online that uh once upon a time back in your northwestern days that you played some rugby uh, oh, yeah because yeah, that obviously very popular here in ireland are those stories true and can you tell us a little bit about uh the that if it is the case yeah and i've got my sweater hanging on the wall over here actually my north is, is 30 years plus years old now but um yeah i, I I knew some guys who were, were playing and we saw them playing. I thought it'd be fun to play. That looked like a fun game. And, uh, and I was trying to stay in shape, uh, find a way to keep my running and my, and my fitness up so that I could be ready for NFL scouts when they came around Northwestern to, you know, run us through a 40 yard dash or what, what have you. And uh, so I went out and, and did it and played in about, I didn't play in that many. I played in about eight matches. Plus we went to the, the conference tournament, which is the, the lead, the tournament. Uh, for the Big Ten, and uh, had a nice run there, made to the finals. We got we got beat by Illinois, and uh, um, I was the most valuable back of the tournament and all that. And it was just an absolute blast. It was uh, great fun. And I've told a lot of people that um, you know I think Christian Wade's got a chance to play. I thought you know his transfer over to North to uh, American football would be the most seamless playing the position that he did, being as it's so instinctive and. Uh, and uh, I, I really enjoyed playing rugby. I really did. It was a rough and tumble game and uh, a lot of fun. It was, uh, yeah, I would, I recommend rugby to a lot of people. A lot of people are surprised, uh, but that I played it, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it very much. Of course, when I started making my living playing American football, I had to like stop playing, stop playing rugby, but it was fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it greatly. Steve, we're, we're over, we're over. We're over a month away from the draft and just everything that comes with it these days in terms of the extravaganza, the build-up, the scrutiny on the players, all the coverage. Just uh, taken back to your time, 1985, when you were drafted, can you just bring us through the process back then? It's very different to how it is today. 
Very different. Uh, there's seven rounds now. Back then, I think there were 11 or 12 rounds back then. Uh, and um, I was going to, I didn't know if I would be drafted. It would be in the later rounds when I was. I was by myself uh, in a room at Northwestern hanging around. And, um, and I got a call late on, uh, I, I believe it was late on the second day of the draft, maybe, or maybe late that night. Of the first day, it's very. It was late at night, and I got the call that I'd been drafted by the Houston Oilers, uh, which is a team now. It's, it's the Tennessee Titans now, uh, and the draft process then. It was only just the beginning of what you guys may know as the combine. Um, it had only been going for one or two years at that time. I didn't get invited to it, so like I said, I played rugby to stay fit because NFL scouts would come to the university to Northwestern, and they would just say, "Hey, I'm going to be there the day after tomorrow. Can you be ready?" So I needed to stay fit at a moment's notice to be ready to work out and, and to impress a scout from one of the NFL teams. And that's basically the only scouting that I had done other than the film they watched of me on tape of games that we played that season. So um, for me, being a player that was not really going to be highly sought after or, or drafted high in the, in, the, in the draft, or if at all, uh, it, <clears throat> there was no media coverage, live media coverage of the draft. There was no green room. There was no stage. There was no announcement. It was done quite privately in a much more subdued place in a banquet room in a hotel, I believe, in New York, perhaps, or maybe Philadelphia. And uh, everybody just sat around at tables and they all had a phone back, a phone line back to their home office, whatever team they were with. And they were all sitting at the table there and they would scribble a card and hand it and the guy would announce it. And that was it. And they went on. Uh, very haphazard compared to the to the sh to the grand show that we see now. Very very different. Yeah, a, a, lot more, a lot more technical difficulties back in those days as well, Steve. If I remember right. some of the, the the fun stories that occurred. But talking about you, and then obviously you get drafted, and you established yourself quite quickly. I would say as like a pioneer in special teams. And there's a lot of players that come into the league and have to establish themselves in special teams and make their seat in the 53 man roster. But if I may say, like you've probably got a great claim to potentially being one of the greatest, if not the greatest, special teams player of all time. Like you're a real pioneer for the the type of uh, all round play in the special teams unit and devoted yourself to it. And you know, you look around the league now, and head coaches like Bill Belichick and John Harbaugh pay a lot more attention to it, and they always have a player like a a Matthew Slater or a Justin Bethel or people like this. But I'm just curious, like, do you? ever reflect on kind of your role there as a pioneer and really establishing the importance of that and indeed you know the continued excellence you displayed over the years yeah it, it's i'm honored to be in that conversation it's humbling um i <clears throat> the, the special teams role became much more prominent right around the 1980 early 80s 1980s 82 when they began to recognize a, a pro an all pro position at special teams put a, a a roster spot on the Pro Bowl, the all-star ballots, uh, so that they would start voting for people like that. And, and there were a few guys that I looked up to as a, as a young NFL player uh, that I would look at, and like Mossy Tatupu and, um, you know, Bill Bates of the Cowboys, uh, think guys like that. And uh, Ron Wolfley was a friend of mine uh, who was actually a guy from Buffalo who played for the Cardinals, and now he's in Arizona. Um, guys like that who had May, had a stretch of success and gained a little notoriety, particularly inside football. But I think <clears throat> luckily for me, 
I got on the team that I did when I, I walked in and I was a Buffalo Bill mid-season of 1986 and began playing special teams right away on a team that got very good pretty quickly. And we started getting noticed and, and you know, fortunately I was, I was helping that team win in, in ways that were unusual and unique by blocking kicks and forcing fumbles and, and, tackling players deep in their own territory and forcing field position compromises by the other team, by our opponents, um, really doing some tangible, making some tangible contributions to a team that was very good. And of course we went to the champion, the AFC championship game in 88 playoffs in 89, and then to four straight Super Bowls. and all through that stretch guy, me and my teammates were doing things on special teams that were a little bit unprecedented and, I think one reason was it was consistent. It wasn't like one game here this year and then a game next year. It was like weekend, week out, and month after month of the season, we were contributing significantly to that team's success. And, and luckily, too, I was teammates with Jim Kelly and Bruce Smith and Thurman, and, and those guys were also very appreciative of our contributions, and they, they were vocal about how much they appreciated contributions from role players like, like me and Mark Pike and, um, you know, Carwell Gardner and Chris Hale, other players of our on our team, they were the, the star players, the truly Hall of Fame type players were very appreciative and demonstrative in their affection for us and our contributions. So that brought a lot more notoriety and attention to guys like us. And uh, and that. I think. Has. Has continued uh, for whoever, maybe for Matthew Slater, for other players who do it. Uh, people of our generation and and who have come after remember that there have been players like me and, and others who have steadily contributed in a way that made a difference for their teams. And that I think if if there was ever anything, you know, maybe it was that we were the first crew or first group to have a great team have a steady contribution of that sort uh, during its run. Steve, the external narrative was that you, all, you almost didn't demand more time as a wide receiver, but you were really effective when you were given that opportunity. Going back to that Miami game, when you had 100-plus yards and, and the score that really stands out, do you ever wish you may have had more opportunities, or was that something you regret in your career? I don't have any regrets. I, I was very fortunate. I, I, was, I, I, <laughs> I was treated better than I deserved to be. I was, it was always great. I have no regrets at all. I, and, and to, and there's only 11 guys on the field at a time. And if I had to, if I'd have gotten a chance to play, I'd have a hard time picking one of the guys on our team to take off. Right. It's not like they could play with 12 if they wanted me to play. So we had a very deep roster, a very good roster and it fit well. And if they take me off of special teams to play, play more offense, um, it would have, you know, the, the replacement wouldn't have been as good. And I, there's every chance that I wouldn't have been as good a replacement offensively. So I think one of the reasons that team was able to go to the, uh, the four straight Super Bowls was that they maximized every spot on their roster. Uh, they were getting good play from me and guys like me and our team playing special teams. We were professional special teams players and our offensive team, our offensive, we had four, maybe five hall of fame guys running around offensively. And we had the greatest defensive player ever in Bruce Smith on that side, along with Cornelius Bennett and Daryl Talley and some guys that were just phenomenal players. So 
not only did we get great play offensively and defensively, but we also had elite play on special teams. And, and, and I think that takes that when you're talking about a run of four straight Super Bowls like that, they, the, the whole 53 guys on the roster have to contribute consistently. Uh, be, you know, some, you know, have ups and downs, but within that, there's so many guys contributing in a high level that it's difficult for another team to beat us on a consistent basis. So, you know, for our run to be put together like that, I think Marv Levy deserves a lot of credit for being able to maximize the roster the way he did. Steve, I've seen you mention the impact of James Lofton and Cornelius Bennett, not just as great players, but as catalysts to make other players great. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, James Lofton was a great player, perhaps a Hall of Fame player before he ever arrived in Buffalo. He's a number one draft pick for the Green Bay Packers, played for the Raiders. And in fact, through that time he had in the Raiders, which was short lived, it's where he got acquainted with the coach who came to our staff from, from Oakland or L.A. And he's the guy who knew how good a player James still was. He came to us deep in his career. And James's, <laughs> James' personality and sense of humor were a real bonding agent for the players in our position group, our wide receivers. Andre Reed, um, his personality really needed a person like James to make him feel secure about how his contribution was going. Andre really was a guy who was emotionally a guy who needed to be, to feel like he fit in. And James gave him that. And James was a, a tremendously great player who came into us with a lot of credibility as a professional athlete. And him, you know, being complimentary of Andre and, and, you know, being on the field with Andre and their relationship really gave Andre a sense of belonging and peace with what he was doing in, in the spot that he was. And I, I think James is, a, and plus his play on the field, James's play on the field as the X receiver uh, on the opposite of Andre in the slot. And then Don Beebe outside of Andre was, that that mixture just seemed to be perfect with the addition of, of James. And on the other side of the ball, Cornelius Bennett, who in my mind deserves Hall of Fame consideration as well, was a tremendously gifted athlete. He could, uh, I hate to say it, but you know, I say it privately, but he, he could probably outrun me. And he weighed 250 pounds. I, he was a, just a, he was just a an absolutely gifted athlete at, the, at an enormous size. He wasn't as big as Bruce, but he could play in space. Uh, he could run plays down. He could cover guys in the secondary. He could rush the passer. He was a, a dynamic force in the defense and very versatile athlete who could rush the passer from any position uh, across the front. So he could rush on a center or either guard or either tackle and, and be dominant. So his athleticism and his ability to play football in space as well as rush the passer um, was really the thing that that helped Bruce Smith plow through the middle part of his career and continue to get double digit sacks every year uh, and on his way to 200 in a career. So Cornelius's contribution and Bruce and Cornelius were still to this day very close. Uh, they're good friends of mine, obviously, as well. But those guys uh, spent a lot of time away from the field together as well. So um, you know, that there's a lot that went into that group that went to four Super Bowls and their personal relationships are as much a part of the story behind it as what you saw between the lines on a Sunday afternoon. Dave, you, 
you touched on the um, Hall of Fame players and Hall of Fame consideration. And when Canton rolls around, there tends to be conversations as much about players who are not getting in to the Hall of Fame as to the ones who are. And I've seen shows in the past, a great NFL network show a number of years ago where your name was, was on the list. And they, I suppose they put the attributes as to why you should be considered for the Hall of Fame. You said you've no regrets in, in terms of the career, but is that something that you think about much when it comes around every year? Well, I, I think about it, obviously it's an honor to be in that conversation and I've been in it for a long time and I'm, and I, it's very humbling to be on the list of guys who should be considered for the hall of fame. And I, and yeah, I guess I should be considered for it, but, and, and I have no problem with the aspect, the, the point of view I have now is the league is so good and the players who have been played in the league, who I played with and against, and even the players who have been there subsequently since I left there's always a steady stream of tremendously great players that come up for eligibility in the Hall of Fame. And invariably, my name is on the list, but justifiably so, my name comes too far down the list to get close enough to the top to get in. So that's basically the, the life that I, I lead as a, as a Hall of Fame candidate. And I, and I appreciate that the the consideration they give me, and it is serious consideration. And I've been a semifinalist a handful of times, um, but that's basically what what a player like I am am up against is. Uh, it's a list of truly great players that I'm on, but not close enough to the top to actually merit induction into the Hall of Fame. Well, well Steve, I mean, we, we've quoted the stats of the amount of high school players that go on to play in college, and then the college players that go on to play in the NFL. You know, you're in that elite, elite category. You went on to have a great career and, and you know, in consideration for the Hall of Fame. But don't worry about that mustard blazer. We've got a nice green Irish NFL show blazer for you anytime. <laughs> okay. You get I'll you it. Um, you know, invariably, Steve, you know, a lot of the fans in Europe and Ireland uh, got into the NFL very much when it started being shown in terrestrial TV. So the great teams around that era, the Bears, 85, you know, the 49ers, the Dolphins with Marino, and of course, your great Bills team uh, have a great degree of affection in these parts because, you know, a lot of people in that generation, that was their intro to American football. And they've loved it and followed it ever since. You mentioned you joined the Bills in 86 and you're fortunate enough to join a good team at that time. Might have been to do with something like the other Irishman, Mr. Jim Kelly, who joined at the same year. Um, and, and like Colin said, we were lucky enough to have him on the show and he told some great stories and like his spirit of character, his leadership just shines through. But I want to flip that round on, on Jim a little bit. And I wonder, you know, maybe you can dish the dirt on a, on a few funny stories or a few scenarios where his leadership in the locker room or just in general in relation to that, that whole era for you. I'll give you a story. Um, <clears throat> you've seen quarterbacks. If you watch a lot of football, you've seen quarterbacks throw interceptions, right? Uh, invariably it used to be worse than it is now where the guy throw an interception and he gets out of the way. You know, he says, hope somebody makes the tackle. He hopes he just gets out. He runs to the sideline or he's just so disgusted. He just starts to walk off the field after he throws the interception. Uh, one of the early days, I think it's 1990, our first Super Bowl year, uh, we're playing the Arizona Cardinals. And Jim, on the first series of the game, he dropped on the very first third down of the game. He drops back to throw. And Leonard Smith, who had subsequently would become a, a Buffalo Bill, uh, 
blitzed off the blitzed off his right side and Jim's looking to his left and Leonard hits him with the point of his helmet right on his jaw and Jim knocks he knocks Jim off his feet uh the ball comes loose and they scoop it up and start to run and when they tackle the guy Jim is in on the tackle so he got knocked on his on his back and during and we saw it on film the next day. On the, during the melee that the follows, the guy got down inside our ten yard line. Jim was chasing him down and actually, you know, was off his feet trying to trying to make the tackle. Um, another time we're playing during the heyday and we're playing the Atlanta Falcons in Buffalo. And he threw another. He threw an interception. These are all interception stories. So he threw another interception in their end zone. And it was an Atlanta Falcon player, and he was having a very a tremendous year. And I can't remember the gentleman's name. He's, he's a great safety. And he caught it coming towards our sideline. And he ran, was coming out of the end zone. He was running right down our sideline. Jim once again took off after him and had the angle. And he tackled him. <clears throat> and as and I was standing right there. As they, I just happened to be the place where they met on the sideline. Jim tackled him, and you could hear the guy's leg break. And he ended up on his knees, and he was hurting. And I, you could see when I looked at him, I was watching. I kind of walked towards him. You could see he was on his knees just like normal, like he was in prayer, just getting up. And he was kind of in a little, dis obviously, in a little discomfort before he actually realized what was a problem. And you could see his broken leg there. It wasn't a compound fracture, but his leg had like, you know, two knees, right? So we started motioning the Atlanta trainers to come over and get him. And certainly it ended his season right then and there in front of our, in front of our bench. Jim's attitude and ownership of his own mistakes endeared him to his teammates. Even in practice, he would say, oh, that was my bad. That was a bad throw. I, I should have done this and this and this. And he goes, that's my bad. He, his, his willingness to be the brunt of the blame in a bad play went miles and miles toward players like me who would have taken a bullet for him. Um, it's, it's not that common. As amazing as it sounds, as simple as it sounds, it's not that common. Um, it was common on our team. Um, I had a, 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 an exchange on the radio just the other day with one of my, he has, he says, does, do, do players, does a locker room that loves each other cause you to win games or does winning games cause you to love each other in the locker room? And I said, this is the, the answer is it's, it's a yin and a yang, right? Certainly winning makes you love the guys on the team. And certainly if you love the guys on the team, you play better and usually well enough to win. But here's the difference. And this is what I experienced with as the Bills on that great team. The Hall of Fame players, all of them, and guys who, not, weren't, who aren't in the Hall of Fame yet, uh, like Bruce, Jim, Thurman, Andre, uh, Cornelius Bennett, Daryl Talley, Kent Hull, um, some of the greatest players in the league at the time we were playing were also for us players who worked extremely hard to be good at what they did in their own right. 
players like me and depth for players on the roster who were just young players who were watching and you watch a guy like Bruce Smith and a Jim Kelly, a Cornelius Bennett, a Thurman Thomas, never take a day off unless they were given it by the coaching staff. They were, they showed up and they practiced and they lifted weights and they worked hard and they, and they talked about how they were going to get better. They watched film and they studied, they did an amazing overabundance of hard work to be good at what they did. And the important thing was this, those tremendous, those legendary, even while they were playing legendary players were for and in support of lesser players like myself. They were for us being better and being recognized and be playing better and getting better. They were unselfish in their praise for us, in their help for us and their support of us, the guys on the other guys on the roster. When truly great players who are for they're never going to get cut or released or traded when truly great players like that are for all of us and act like it and say it and live it like that your team becomes better than if you just add up all the talent in the room you you become more than just the sum of the equation you become special um other players and the other players in the locker room who otherwise would never have been known become legendary, become Hall of Fame caliber, become considered for Hall of Fame, become beloved by the team and the town that they played in the city that they played in. They become legendary themselves because of the legendary players already there willing to share that platform with them and, and being for them and hoping the best for them and, and you know, doing what they can to help the other players on the team play well. That's the secret of a team and how a team becomes something special. Steve, as somebody that, you know, wasn't obviously watching the NFL in those days, I have to say for somebody watching back in, in, in this generation, that was a legendary answer. I'm actually just going to jump into my question in regards to that. The year I was born, uh, the Bills played the Eagles at Wembley. Uh, at the at the now historic old Wembley, where a lot of us who are big soccer fans never even got to go. I know uh, there was games in '91, there was a game in '93, uh, and then obviously other games. And obviously the Bills have played in London since. Um, I know the American Bowl was more was more preseason as to what it is now. But what was your opinion of that whole situation? And are you surprised at the growth of the game uh, since? Obviously now with the games in London, or what's your thoughts? I'm, I'm not surprised at the growth of the game. Um, despite the fact that it's mostly a United States game, or it start, at least started out like that, uh, the, the growth that it has overseas and around worldwide uh, doesn't surprise me because in, in, from what I've seen and, and experienced, it's probably one of the best run sports leagues on the planet. Uh, the leadership understands how to grow it. Um, every team has an equal stake in the growth of the entire league and in the growth of all the other franchises as well. They share, they share so much of the financial burden and the benefit that when one team does great, they all benefit from that. And it's also a league that is incredibly um, fair in the franchise's ability to be good and to be competitive. A team like Green Bay that is owned by the fans and, and a team like 
Buffalo or New Orleans, these teams that are in towns that are much smaller than New York and Los Angeles and Chicago and Houston and Miami, much smaller markets who would never be able to compete financially if the, if the field, if they were left to their own devices. It is a very competitive league from top to bottom consistently year after year. And every team can feel like they can be competitive. And the league has embraced more so than any other sport I can think of the its appeal when you see it on television. They package it into a three hour window. They make sure that it starts on time. They have a, a certain finite amount of commercials. They, you know, they, they really do it. They have made great efforts and evolved into this place where it's a television program and it draws a lot of eyeballs and that drives revenue. And the more eyeballs that see it, the more interest there is and the game grows further and everybody, you know, it's just, it's a great business model that they have developed. And I think it'll continue to grow. Um, it's, they've got, that's the business side of it. The other side of it is, it's a compel, it's a compellingly, still a compellingly violent game that is really hard not to watch. It's like not, it's like trying to look away from a car crash. You can't, you can't, you really want to see it, right? You really want to see him crash, right? Um, and it's also played by phenomenal athletes. These guys are, are honed professional athletes. And I tell people, um, I've heard people say, I got to, they, they get to watch pregame warmups on the sidelines. They have a, most teams will give season ticket holders or corporate partners a number of sidelines. They'll get to watch the players practice on the sidelines. Let me tell you, I've watched maybe, a, a, you know, hundreds and hundreds of games from the sidelines. And only then can you get an idea of how big and fast they move. It's, a, it's an unbelievably compelling game to watch. Up, the closer you get, the more unbelievably compelling it is to watch because of the physical nature of the game. So the business side of it, where the, the clubs share the revenue and it's very financially stable, the compellingness of you know, the, the violence of these huge athletes that, that compete, uh, or, or, you know, makes it really compelling to watch. And then the third thing is this, there's, as much as I've said that, nothing's sacred. The, the game is not sacred. The ball is not sacred. That what Nothing's sacred. So the league really has always been very willing to tweak anything and everything that the fans think needs to be tweaked. They change the rules every year to give the fans more of what they do want and less of what they don't want. Um, they've, it is a league that is built to grow and it continues to, as you guys, and you guys are evidence of that right now, the Irish NFL. I mean, what a, it's awesome. So it, it is a league that is built to grow and uh, it probably will continue to. Steve, uh, as, as great a player as you were, I think Roger Goodell might want to hire you as a, as a salesperson as well, because yeah. you do, you do a phenomenal job. Um, I know it's, I know it's not called, Technically, it's not called the, the Steve Tasker rule, but could you talk to us about the, the Steve Tasker rule that the league had to enact? I didn't invent it, but I did perfect it. So here's the rule. <clears throat> when, you, when teams would punt the ball, you know, you, and it's almost like in every sport, in soccer, in, uh, uh, in American football, and you know, everything is, if you go out, even in baseball, you go outside the lines, it's foul ball, right? So 
you know, when you play a game in basketball, it's out of bounds. You know, nobody can, you don't want to go out of bounds. Tennis, same thing. It's a fault. So in football, it was the same way. And when, when they would punt the ball, change into the field or whatever, um, as I, as I started to make a name for myself, I would usually get double teamed. I would have two, two guys standing, trying to keep me from running down the field. And it was, the ball would be in here and I would be standing here in the sideline and the bench area would be over here. And it was my job to get around these two guys and go down and tackle a guy. What they would do is try and push me is try to push me one direction, right or left, instead of letting me go and letting me go behind them. So as we took off, I kept, I'd get pushed out of bounds. <laughs> so I, I think it just happened one time. They got a really good push on me and I got pushed out of bounds. I was way out of bounds. And I was running pretty fast. So I just kept running and then came back in bounds. And so I thought, well, that worked. So I did it. And when they put, whenever they pushed me out of bounds, I started running out of bounds and they would come out of bounds to chase me. And there were all kinds of guys, all kinds of guys standing out of bounds. And I would just use them as, as interference. I ran, I, I ran behind the New York jet bench you know, the bench area behind the coaches in between the bench and the sideline, I'd run down through there as fast as I could and pop out at the other end, ready to make the tackle. And the guys trying to block me were bumping into their own guys or they couldn't keep track of me through there or they try to follow me. It was a real problem for them. So then finally they put a rule in that said, you can't deliberately run out of bounds. They can push you out of bounds, but if they push you out of bounds, you got to come right back in. And I, I claim that as the Steve Tasker rule because I, I, I perfected the art of doing exactly what they outlawed. <laughs> Steve, just, just on the current Buffalo team, um, obviously getting to the championship game last year, I suppose there's mixed reactions in a sense. Some felt they overachieved. And then I also read uh, stories where some people felt that they probably would have given the Bucks a better game in the Super Bowl. Just what you're, you're living in the local area, you're working in the local area. What's your thoughts? Ahead? You know, I suppose we're a long way off the next season, but where do you see in free agency and potentially in the draft where they need to make tweaks to bring the team onto the next level? Well, if, if you're if you want follow the team closely and have for the last couple of years, two years ago, the Bills were a very good defensive team. Uh, they were one of the top two or three defenses in the National Football League, and, and they deserved it. They were very solid, hard, hard to get first downs against. Uh, and the offense with Josh still developing and they didn't have Steph Diggs at that time. You know, they, they could do some things. They were getting better, but they just you know, they were only scoring maybe 20 points a game. Um, and it just wasn't quite enough. There's 19 and a half points, I think, they averaged for the season. So they really struggled to score points. Now, then this last year, they were completely different. The offense was unstoppable. They scored 29 and a half points a game. Josh had a record-breaking season. He's a, he's a, he was runner-up in the MVP voting. Um, and the defense was more middle of the road than it had been two years ago. So... Going forward, it's hard to anticipate what they're going to look like this year. Certainly with Josh, Steph Diggs, and the wide receiver and the skill positions offensively, you'd think they could, but their offensive line has now been decimated by free agency. Four of their top six or seven offensive linemen are not under contract at this point. Uh, they've got to fix that. It's, it's Josh needs protection. It's paramount. So it may be 
job one in this offseason to do that going forward. A lot of people in Buffalo have said, you know, and point and rightfully so, pointed at the Kansas City Chiefs with Pat Mahomes and Tyreek Hill and Andy Reid, the head coach, as that being the team that you have to beat. You have to be able to beat the Kansas City Chiefs. And now they come up with you have to do this to beat them. You have to have a, a great tight end to beat them, or you have to have a great defense to beat them, or you have to really the, the Bills are good enough to do that. They were good enough to do that last year. But you have to play well on the day you play the Chiefs. And the Chiefs can't play their best the way they did. I thought the Chiefs' best game of the season was the one they played against the Buffalo Bills in the AFC Championship game. That was their as good a game as they played all year. And, and tip your hat to them. The Bills needed to play their best to beat them, but they're very close. They're in that conversation. When you get down to the final four to six teams in the NFL playoffs, you know, there's eight teams in the next in the in the divisional round. Of those eight teams, six, maybe all eight, but at least six or five could probably go the whole way and win the Super Bowl. They're, they're that good. There's not that much difference. The question is this: on the day you play that team, can you play better? And that's where the Bills are at right now. They're, they're at an elite level this last year. Josh is playing extremely well. They've got enough offensive weapons. They've got enough athletes to be there again if they can refurbish their roster. It won't look exactly like it did this year because of free agency, a shrunken salary cap, that kind of thing. But they're good. And they'll be able to bounce back. The question is, can they play as well as they need to on, in those critical moments that they just came up one game short of last year. Uh, but they were very, they were good enough last year to beat that team if they had played better on that day. That's kind of the way it is at the end. You know, all these teams have great players. And if you can get your great players and your, and your supporting players to play better on that day, you can beat them. You, you will be good enough to beat them. Steve, I feel like, I feel like you're uh, establishing very clearly your Irish uh, establishment. You know, 23 pubs in one night, we heard earlier. I know you said eight, but I'm going to have it as one night. You know, <laughs> they, they have to make up rules and outlaw what you do because you're too good at it. You know, definitely, definitely Irish connections in relation to all this. But, you know, I, I, I'm kind of curious, your skill set as a, as a player, your speed, as you said, your nimbleness, especially in special teams and the you know, what's it been called before? Organized carnage that goes on in various special teams plays. I feel like almost you're almost uh, um, played in the wrong era in some respects because that whole slot receiver, the shifty three cone capabilities. I mean, you know, people like you and Steve Large and, and people like that didn't necessarily get the same amount of game time back uh, when you were playing in the late 80s, early 90s. I'm curious, like, you know, whether on special teams or whether these, you know, you would have played for the Patriots, basically. They've all got small white guys, basically, to, to play for them at this stage. But um, I'm just curious, are there any players in the modern game you look at and you kind of are particularly impressed by, you look at and kind of go, yeah, I would love to, you know, that that's the guy that that's me these days or that's the guy that, you know, I, I kind of plays most like me or anything or just guys that you really oh, like. I, anyway. I don't know. I, I don't really compare myself to the guys these days because <clears throat> I, I cover the game, you know, as a kind of as a journalist now, I'm as a former player, as an analyst. So I, I do appreciate the great players that are in the game today. And, and I think too, that uh, the game is, has gotten better since, since I played the, the, the coaching uh, at the lower levels of football that the NFL draws their players from 
the coaching at those levels and the level of football played at the lower levels is better and better. It's much better than it was when I came out. Um, much more developed, much more sophisticated. Uh, football has started to grow deeper into our youth, uh, youth sports consciousness here in America. And they start and they keep playing. They're playing football now in the off season with seven on seven. They play in shorts, but they throw the football all the time. So you're getting a larger number of really good trained quarterbacks, uh, which is always crucial for every every league. Uh, you're getting guys who run routes and know what and know route concepts uh, much better, and are much more polished coming out of the college ranks uh, into the pros. Now you're getting you're getting more and more really high level play from younger and younger players, uh, and that leads to a game that has evolved where now the NFL has also adopted and embraced a college, a little bit college philosophy where a quarterback, they're not so, the quarterback is not so hemmed in in the pocket now. They'll drop back or they can, they can roll the, the, court, the mobile quarterback is a must now almost rather than uh, an exception uh, because now they've, they've got concepts and offensive philosophies that cater to that skill set and uh the way the offenses have evolved as well is they've also started to use the area right at the line of scrimmage all the way to the sidelines as a threat to the defense that space has now become more threatening to defenses plus the speed and the concepts that take the lid off a of defense by sending guys deep has spread defenses more thinly than ever before, and it has created you know more space for players like me to be a factor in it. It used to be back in in the 1960s, mid 19th century, mid 1900s, the 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s. Most players, even the skilled players, were big, well over six feet tall, well over 200 pounds, and the reason was it was so physically brutal, and there was no space to work. And the rules were such that they could be physical with one another, even away from the football as a wide receiver, that kind of thing. That you had to be that big to kind of endure the physical punishment, or you'd be in, you'd be injured every week. So now, with the space that's being created and the speed that's being added, and the rules that are more protective of players, you know, players of slighter builds like myself. You don't have to be a 6'4 wide receiver anymore. You can be a 5'10 wide receiver, 5'9, 5'9-inch wide receiver. You know, you can be, what is it, 1.75 meters, right? And and still play. And so that game, the evolution of the game in that regard has opened it up for players like me. And uh, and coaches are you had know, a lot of very smart people who apply a lot of mathematics and a lot of creativity to play selection and skill sets of their players. And they, they tailor offenses to what their players are capable of doing rather than just X's and O's on a board and here. I'm going to hand it to this guy and see what happens. It's, it's very creative and the coaches are very good at using the skill sets of the players that have been given to them. And because of the player safety rules and the way the game has evolved, players like myself are more prevalent now because we can stand the physical punishment or the lack thereof. 
Steve, we've been very fortunate to have had so many great guests on over the last few months. I have to say, this is probably one of the best. It's been fantastic yeah. to listen to. You, you don't have to say to... that. Come on. I, no, I'm being, I'm being completely up. serious. I mean, these guys <laughs> will tell you, I was all on the, I, I, I'm, I'm a Broncos fan, but I was on the Bills bandwagon for about three months. I still have Josh Allen MVP written on my board over here. Look, I tell you what, fantastic to have you on. But I tell you what, next year when the Bills are, probably going to be in, in in the AFC championship game again hopefully if it isn't the Broncos hopefully if it and hopefully it's not the Chiefs for me anyway so we we'll have to get you on from from, from LA when we're all over there next year but Steve it's, it's been a pleasure and it's incredible to hear from your experience both uh, in your playing career and and afterwards and just thanks thanks so much for coming on man Massively guys it was a pleasure I appreciate it no worries and anytime you need me I'm I'm here you know how to reach me <laughs>